Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Paul Lucas, the former president and CEO of GlaxoSmithKline. For 16 years, uh, Mr. Lucas led the pharmaceutical giant in this country. And when I say we've developed a relationship, it's purely professional. There's no money changing hands or not even any vaccines changing hands. Bad joke. Mr. Lucas, how are you? I'm good, Roy. How are you? I'm great. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. No problem. Happy to do it. Let's start with this, because this is the headline story across North America and uh, and beyond, and it has to do with lifting vaccine patent protection. U.S. President Joe Biden is suggesting that. It's been uh, followed and supported by uh, various numbers of governments around the world. Germany hasn't, but Canada is on the fence. What is this issue about? Let's start, first of all, what's the issue about to the pharmaceutical company, how's the, or industry? How's the pharmaceutical industry reacting to this? Mm-hmm. So just to put it in perspective as to what, uh, what this is all about is that um, the vaccines that have been developed by the companies that everybody knows well by now, uh, they're protected by intellectual property rights. Uh, so that gives them the opportunity to manufacture and sell these for a period of time uh, exclusively. And, and that exists because they invested a lot of money to develop them and taken a lot of risk and so on. So that's the principle of protecting that intellectual property. Uh, in, in cases uh, like a pandemic that we're in, um, there is the opportunity to waive those patents in order to ensure that poorer countries get access to vaccines or medicines, whatever it might be. Um, you know, it, it's an honorable approach um, to try and do that. But in effect, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen at this point in time. Um, and for the life of me, I don't understand. I do understand why President Biden actually uh, announced that he would support the waiving of patents at the World Trade Organization. Um, you know, it's strictly a, a political issue for him at this point. I mean, he promised the left wing of the Democratic Party before he got elected that he would uh, actually make this proposal. Um and um, interestingly enough, uh, reading the uh, editorial board from the um, Wall Street Journal, let me read it to you, <laughs> Roy, because I think it, it captures this quite nicely and why it's such a, uh, a bad idea. The editorial board of the, of the paper says, we already criticized President Biden's bewildering decision Wednesday to endorse a patent waiver for COVID vaccines and therapies. But upon more reflection, this may be the single worst presidential economic decision since Nixon's wage and price controls. In one fell swoop, he has destroyed tens of billions of dollars in U.S. intellectual property, set a destructive precedent that will reduce pharmaceutical investment, and surrendered America's advantage in biotech, a key growth industry of the future. Handed an American triumph of innovation and a great soft power opportunity, Mr. Biden throws it all away. So uh, that kind of sums it up quite nicely. Um, it's not the time to be uh, uh, waiving patents for vaccines that everybody sorely needs. Um, you know, these companies have invested a lot. And now, now that we have them, you want to take away their protection and say, well, we're going to let everybody else sell them. 
Um, and, and I have to ask the question, you know, what would anybody else think of, of that approach if they had their own business and they were told, well, look, we're, we're going to not protect you anymore with intellectual property. We're just going to open it up and everybody can steal your innovation. So not a good move. Uh, hopefully Canada will not support that. Uh, there is talk that they, they might or they will. Um, but, you know, for Mr. Trudeau, uh, this, is a, this is a time bomb. Um, you know, if he comes out and supports Biden, which, you know, he, he is wont to do because they are kind of two peas in a pod, uh, and he wants to support Biden on most policy initiatives. If he comes out and supports him, then he's going to, you know, anger the pharmaceutical industry, which he has had no relationship with and has been begging them to help him uh, with more vaccine accessibility. So uh, not a good situation to be in. And if he doesn't support uh, Biden on this, then uh, he's going to alienate the left wing part of his own party, which is pretty big. So that's a long winded answer to your question. Hopefully I answered it. No, I understand, because the question that I had when I was thinking about this particular issue was, how will pharmaceutical companies approach developing adaptive vaccines for variants going forward and booster shots going forward if patent rights are removed? Well, you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, that's absolutely right. I mean, okay, so now you're a pharmaceutical company and you're in the process of producing revised vaccines for the variants. Well, why would you do that now? Because if you have no patent cover, you have no way of, of, of covering your costs. And there's also the companies that the, the Canadian government and other governor, governments have put money into, like Metacago here and like uh, uh, the NRC with the Novavax deal, where they're hoping to bring vaccines into the marketplace. And why would they do that now um, if their patents are not going to be protected? Uh, they have no chance of being successful. So it, it's it's not a smart move. And, you know, so... So what do we do, right? What do we do to help the, the, the developing Well, that's the question, isn't it? Because you're, what you're going yeah. to be hearing is, look, these big pharma companies, all they want to do is make money off, off a pandemic. Right. Yeah, and that's, and that's what you do here. And we heard that through the whole HIV epidemic. Um, and the industry worked closely with governments to uh, make sure that those poor countries actually got access to very cheap HIV medication. And that's really the way to approach this. It's uh, first of all, the Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca and J and J are are producing billions of doses right now and into next year. So in effect, they're they're going to have billions of doses for the world. Um, but they are also licensing other companies to produce more vaccine, and that's really the the way to approach this. Encourage them uh, to allow other companies to produce their vaccines. Uh, not by taking away their patent protection, by, but by having some sort of commercial relationship. And then the government should take a role in this. Uh, the government should be buying those vaccines and then donating them to those countries. And, you know, COVAX already exists. They could put more of those vaccines into COVAX. Um, you know, Mr. Trudeau has bought uh, 400 million doses of vaccine, which we don't need. He said that he's going to donate those to other countries. So there is the opportunity to address this problem without basically stealing innovation from the companies who brought us what is in the history of the world, miracles. They really have. And 
um, you know, th- this really is a miracle what they've been able to okay. do to bring these vaccines to the world. How important is the time frame issued by a pharmaceutical company concerning maximum efficacy of a vaccine the company produced? So when Pfizer says three weeks, 21 days, and Nasi comes forward and says four months, how do you react? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's a difficult one because that that decision was driven by the fact that we never had enough vaccines in Canada. So it forces people to make these kinds of decisions. So um, clearly, uh, when a when a, a vaccine or a drug goes through the regulatory review process, uh, it is reviewed based on the clinical data that is developed through the extensive clinical trials. And that's what gets approved. So that three or four week uh, interval for uh, Pfizer and Moderna, that's the way those those vaccines were studied. And that's the way they should be used. There is no there is really no scientific evidence to support uh, doing anything different. Now, um, groups like NASI have recommended, you know, a four-month uh, four-month gap or an interval. They have done that in other situations with other vaccines in the past in Canada. They do that based on their academic experience and so on, uh, but they don't do it on any firm scientific evidence. Uh, which always amazed me that they would be willing to do that. Um, but again, you know, it, it comes back to the fact that there, you know, the federal government did not uh, acquire enough vaccines early enough, and it forced these kinds of decisions. Now, you know, we won't know for another while whether or not that decision uh, was a good one or a bad one. Um, so. Uh, very difficult when we get forced into non-scientific uh, decisions like this. But the pharmaceutical company has a reason for providing a timeline. Absolutely. And, um, you know, if uh, I know when I was working in the industry, um, and, and if it, particularly if you're working in the U.S. with their judicial system there, if, if an industry individual were to promote or recommend anything other than what was approved by the FDA, uh, there are jail sentences associated with that. You cannot do that. Uh, it is against the law, and it is against the law in Canada as well to uh, promote anything other than what is in the approved product monograph of the product. Mm. So you will never hear Pfizer or Moderna or the other companies say, yeah, it's probably okay to uh, have a four-month interval. They will never say that because there is no data in their uh, clinical monograph support that. The uh, United States has vaccinated about 110 million people. That's both jabs, one-third of the population. Mm -hmm. Canada has vaccinated both jabs, just under 3% of the national population, or just under a million people. Would you speak again, please, to the fact that Canada has vaccine-producing capability, which the federal government insists we do not. NuVax uh, uh, president, Dr. Donald Gerson, has been on this program and recently saying that foreign governments are approaching his company with the idea of having new vac- prepare vaccination vaccines for their countries. Meanwhile, well, in Canada, yeah. there's no interest. Yeah, it, it, this has all been extremely frustrating, um, and it goes back to what we talked about a number of weeks ago. Uh, but, but first of all, to your data, yeah, I mean, I worry about the fact that uh, Canadians are getting excited about the fact that we've, you know, everybody's getting one shot, uh, you know, soon. But as you say, less than 5% have gotten two shots. We rank something like 80th in the world on that, uh, on that piece of data. 
So, you know, I, I hope Canadians don't have an expectation that things are going to open up soon because they shouldn't and won't open up until people have had, you know, a significant proportion of the population has two doses and they're two weeks past those two doses. So that we've got a long way to go yet. So, um, you know, that's a risky situation. People thinking that, oh, well, you know, in another month or two, we're going to we're going to really be in great shape because we won't be. Um, but um yeah, coming back to uh, you were talking about, you were asking me about, sorry, I forgot the point you wanted me to Well, we're, we're asking about the uh, Canada's cap- capacity, Canadian companies having right. the capacity to produce vaccines. Right, yeah. So, yeah, that has been frustrating because, you know, from the from the get-go, the, the Trudeau government, the Liberal government's uh, past had no relationship with the pharmaceutical industry. So they, they knew nothing about what was going on in the industry what Canada's capabilities were in terms of vaccine production. They didn't know anybody to talk to. And in fact, um, you know, the relationship was so bad that uh, the heads of four or five major pharmaceutical companies, global heads, CEOs, asked for a meeting with the prime minister three or four times over the last couple of years, and he actually refused to meet with them. Uh, He didn't even respond to their requests. So there was no relationship there. The Liberal Party of Canada and the Prime Minister's office knew nothing about what was going on in Canada with respect to vaccines. And so, you know, they, they didn't know what to do. And so they were late in uh, contracting with other co- companies. They missed the fact that there were a couple of other companies like Providence and Nuvax in Canada that might have been able to produce vaccines for Canada. So the whole thing, as I said, you know, very frustrating. The result of bad planning, bad contracting, no relationships. Um, you know, and I, I, I haven't been happy because I hear Mr. Trudeau standing up apologizing to every group that's ever existed in the country, uh, lately the Italians, uh, during World War II. But he's never apologized to Canadians for making the mistakes that they made uh, in this whole pandemic, which has been the biggest issue we faced as a country since World War II, and he consistently blames others for the problem. Like we don't have vaccine manufacturing. Well, they were wrong from the get-go on that. Um, you know, and that's how I got involved. Okay, actually. Uh, Mr. Lucas, I, I'm sorry, I have to stop you there because of the sure. clock. Only because of the clock. I didn't know the nature of the complaint. I did not know the substance of the complaint. I did not know the details of the complaint. I didn't have any info. I didn't know where the complaint came from. I didn't know why it went to the ombudsperson or why the ombudsperson raised it with the minister. I knew very, very little, Madam Chair. Katie Telford, yesterday at the uh, Defence Committee, Member of Parliament James Bazan, the Conservative Party Shadow Minister for National Defence. Mr. Bazan, thanks for coming back on the program. When you heard Ms. Telford say that, uh, what was your reaction? What did, did, yeah, just answer that one first. It was pretty clear, Roy, that, uh, you know, what we had was Kate Telford um, essentially obfuscating uh, and trying to cover up behind the same story that the Prime Minister has been using, uh, yet her own testimony was uh, very conflicting. We know that from all the evidence that we've been able to collect as committee uh, that uh, the Prime Minister's office uh, and the Privy Council office and the Minister of National Defense office were uh, in writing referring to this as a sexual harassment allegation uh, was the exact terminology they were using. And Katie Telford even said that she um, kind of 
quit, uh, you know, pushing on on the issue uh, of these allegations against General Vance when she realized that there wasn't a safety issue. How could she know that if she didn't know uh, about the, the context of the uh, complaint that had come forward via the military ombudsman? And that uh, just makes her whole story yesterday unbelievable and confirms that this is an ongoing cover-up uh, by the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, the Minister of National Defence, Arjit Sajan, as well as others within the uh, Prime Minister's office. Okay, remind us please, I should have started with this, but I wanted you to comment on that on that uh, particular quote. Remind us please why it is you wanted Ms. Telford at the Defence Committee uh, to testify. Why did you want her there? Because we found out at committee a couple of weeks ago from former uh, senior advisor to Prime Minister Trudeau, Elder Marquez, that it was Katie Telford who herself had contacted him on March the 2nd to look into the allegations that um, were presented to um, Defence Minister Harjit Sajan. And as we know, Minister Sajan pushed away the evidence that was presented to him by the Defence Ombudsman Gary Walburn at the time. And we're talking March 1st, 2018, March the 2nd, Katie Telford's already in the loop and telling Elder Marquez to look into these allegations and to get in contact with the Privy Council Office, which he did and communicated numerous times with Zita Estravis, who was Harjit Sajan's Chief of Staff uh, back in 2018. So we asked yesterday when we had uh, Katie Telford at committee over a dozen times, you know, who made the decision not to tell the Prime Minister about these allegations of sexual misconduct against General Vance? And she refused to answer every time. Instead, she obfuscated with uh, the clip that you just uh, played. And, you know, if she had nothing to hide, she would have answered the question honestly. So, again, you know, she viewed these and she said this yesterday, these accusations were serious. You know, she said that she never did enough in her opening testimony. Um, But if that was the case, if it was serious, why didn't she tell the prime minister? Justin Trudeau should have known that the top soldier in the country with the highest security clearances uh, had uh, was in, in a serious situation with allegations. It doesn't matter if it was, you know, sexual misconduct is terrible, but what if these allegations were, were, were of, you know, corruption, of uh, spying, of, you know, collusion, other issues were there. There's all sorts of different pieces of allegations. Why didn't they investigate it more fully? And why wouldn't they tell Justin Trudeau if we're to believe him that he didn't know? Okay, so you last weekend when you were on the air with me, and I pressed you on this after you had said it initially, you said that you thought the Minister of National Defense had lied. Do you believe that Ms. Telford yesterday, um, she was under oath, so I'm going to ask you, do you think that the Prime Minister's office and the Prime Minister are lying when they say they didn't know? I think all of us has reached that conclusion that they are lying. Uh, It's clear that there's still more evidence in this scandal that, you know, Justin Trudeau and his liberals are trying to hide from Canadians. And, you know, it all comes down to, you know, that this is an ongoing cover up. And, you know, we have to keep digging into this if we're going to get the answers that the men and women who serve in the Canadian Armed Forces get the answers that they so rightly de- deserve. Okay, let me so- read you something from the Global News story. Uh, and uh, 
And, and the headline of the story is, Telford repeatedly dodges questions about not telling Trudeau of 2018 Vance allegation. Towards the end of the meeting, she was asked by Liberal MP Anita Vandenveld if it was fair to say that the reason she did not, she being uh, Kitty Telford, she did not tell Trudeau was because both she and former senior advisor, Elder Marcus, had been told that bureaucrats were best placed to probe the allegation. Quote, I think that is a fair interpretation, end quote, Telford said. At the end of the meeting, she told members, quote, I don't know what else could have been done, end quote. So that is essentially what you've just told us that she said. Was there, was your questioning as, as effective as it could have been? Or do you think that the, the liberals just played really strong defense for Ms. Telford? Well, I got the feeling that they weren't prepared for our line of questioning. Um, they were there to provide cover and protection to Justin Trudeau, of course. But, you know, they failed to realize that the if, if we're to believe Justin Trudeau, then Katie Telford is the one who took the information firsthand in the Prime Minister's office and has been covering it up since March of 2018. And we know that they failed to get results. Uh, they failed to take this uh, complaint and, and these allegations seriously. They knew the substance of the complaint when you read every piece of testimony. And she can be contrite now after the fact, and hindsight's always twenty twenty. But, you know, it still comes down that they, that Katie Telford failed to inform Justin Trudeau uh, and they, you know, she knew what this was and still uh, was there when Prime Minister Trudeau put pen to paper to give General Vance a, a substantial pay raise and pay at risk and extend his term by another three years and left him in charge of Operation Honor, which has just demoralized uh, our troops, uh, especially the, the women and men who have faced sexual misconduct. And they deserve answers. Yeah. And so, so, so are you saying, in, in the minute we have left here, Mr. Bazan, are you saying that Mr. Trudeau knew that he was informed by someone in the PMO, someone in Ms., under Ms. Telford's direction as the chief of staff, or by Ms. Telford herself, are you saying that the prime minister knew uh, and, and Ms. Telford just didn't tell him? Or are you just saying that there, I want to go back to this point. Are they lying when they testify, when they say what they're saying? Are they lying about when about what they knew, or they say the prime minister didn't know? I'll say this, that they've been disingenuous. It's time for Justin Trudeau to stop hiding the truth from Canadians and take responsibility for the actions within his own office and take actions for the, for the lack of action by Minister Sage and, and Katie Telford. Okay, well, disingenuous is lying. So I'm, I'm not saying you're lying. I'm saying disingenuous. The definition of disingenuous. Yeah, no, they've been is lying. They're, they're, they're lying through their teeth. <laughs> Staff Sergeant Jennifer Pound, who was the face of the integrated homicide investigation team of the Vancouver RCMP, is leaving her job or has left her job after describing as unforgivable the neglect the RCMP directed her way for post-traumatic stress disorder. Staff Sergeant Pound worked very closely with crime victims' families and often in a very public way. She joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. First of all, Staff Sergeant Pound, thank you for your service. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me today. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. Um, you were the face of the integrated homicide investigation team of the RCMP for years. What impact 
has that experience had on you? And I'm asking about the PTSD you've spoken and written about. Yeah, um, I mean, I hit was certainly a part of the impact that the job had on me. Um, it was the totality of the 24 years of policing that I put in. Um, but I hit specifically, you're just dealing constantly, nonstop with with trauma and tragedy and and just a lot of real darkness and seeing families suffering. And it just eventually absorbed into my own being. And I, I, I eventually ended up ill, and that's where my story began. So when you began to experience, as you've written about on, on your blog, when you began to experience symptoms, you sought medical advice, and a two-week leave was prescribed. And subsequently, you expected support from the RCMP internally. That didn't go so well because... And they got in touch with you. What they wanted to know was when you'd get back on the job. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, I think it was it was a real eye-opener for me to, right from the initial stages from when I was diagnosed, to see that the uh, it was just you had to advocate for yourself at every step just to seek help. And to be honest, there just wasn't enough help out there. When you look at how... Um, first responders and police officers and firefighters, everyone is knocking on the same door for help. So it really does cause a backlog and wait lists that um, end up exacerbating the injury. The longer you don't get help, the longer it is to try and combat the illness. So in the beginning, it was a three to four, even up to six month wait list to see the specialists that I needed to see. Um, and so even from there, once I was referred to the operational stress injury clinic, it was a six-month wait lift to get an intake meeting. And from that intake meeting, it was another 12 to 18-month wait list just to seek help. You know, people who listen to this program for a long period of time know we've spoken with first responders about PTSD, police officers, a police a sergeant in uh, the Toronto service, also a former fire, firefighter in, uh, I believe it was Mississauga in Ontario, and a Calgary paramedic's wife. And they spoke about the the cumulative effect of seeing what they saw and dealing with what they dealt with and trying to seek help internally. And the message was always the same. We didn't get it. It wasn't there for us. And we were, in, in the case of the firefighter, uh, and maybe the police sergeant as well, made fun of. Did you find that you had support from your peers or or, or not? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a stigma that they're trying to break through, but the the peer support has never has never been an issue. It was more, uh, it was more health services that is under the umbrella of the RCMP, where uh, where I really noticed the failing system. Um, it, it wasn't about helping to get you to a better place or to wellness. It was mostly about just checking off their diary date boxes and ensuring that their paperwork was not out of date. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you really are, are made to feel like you're just a number, um, and they're just pushing you to get back to work. They're not pushing you to get well. Do you have concerns for other officers uh, who, like you, or I mean, they're still wearing the uniform, they have, they're experiencing PTSD, but they may be afraid to push the envelope? Yeah, absolutely. And it's tough to do when, when you're still working and it's tough to advocate for yourselves. Uh, you have to have that um, ability to speak truth to power. Uh, that doesn't come easy when you're trying to hold down a job as well. 
And part of the problem, too, Roy, is that, you know, the, the government needs to step up and fund uh, and fund the policing um, and first responders everywhere just so that there is extra help. Because when you're knocking on the doors to the specialists, you realize that there just really isn't enough of them out there to, um, to help everybody. They are at full capacity, which makes wait lists extremely long. And I know, speaking from experience, that the longer I was off work, the more segregated I felt from them. Uh, and it just really did, it, it made the injury worse, and it made it that much harder to, to fight back. You know, I'm, I'm hearing parallels, almost, uh, with, with how you were treated by the RCMP, internal mechanisms, and how the women who stepped forward after years of experiencing sexual harassment and worse were treated. I've spoken with them for many years on the air. They also ran into, experienced the, if you will, anything from indifference to incompetence when their when their issues were raised. This is is this endemic right throughout uh, the the process of the RCMP, in your view? Uh, well, I know I I did media for many many years within the RCMP, and I think uh, one of the things that they really strive to do is talk about all the great things and all the initiatives that they're doing and really, really put a positive spin on it when, in fact, uh, they need to start advocating for a system that isn't failing their people. So that means listening to their people, sitting down and taking a look within themselves to say, what can we do better? Um, and not just combating it with, with positive um, statements about what the force is doing. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what they aren't doing. You're from a law enforcement family. So leaving the police, leaving the RCMP must have been a very difficult decision for you. Um, Or or was it the only option that you you felt you had? Um, Well, it kind of went in stages. It was, I, I was definitely going to make it back to work. That was my end goal. And in fact, when I was signed off, even for the first two weeks, I just really, I wasn't okay with that. You just feel like you're letting everybody down. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew, I knew if I didn't get help, I wasn't going to be any good to anybody at work anyway. Okay. And I think that's, that, that's a main concern is that, you know, you've got that stigma there. So if the members aren't coming forward and, and talking about their illness and trying to get the help, then you have those members out on the streets and trying to protect people. Yeah. And that's a danger in itself. So it, it eventually became down to me not having a choice. I knew the only option for me was to walk away. Um, and I didn't walk away angry. I walked away really feeling like I, I did what I could in, with my career and, and was proud of it. With us is uh, Professor and Dr. Peter Hotez. He's the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine and Professor of Pediatrics and Molecular Virology and Microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine, where he's also the coordinator of the Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development. His books include Preventing the Next Pandemic, Vaccine Diplomacy in a Time of Anti-Science. It's been a while since we've spoken with Dr. Hotez. Good to have you back, Dr. Hotez. How are you? Good. Uh, it's good to be talking to you again. Yeah. Can you tell us out of the gate, how well is the vaccination or the vaccinating program in the United States proceeding? How's it moving along? Yeah, well, it depends on where you are in the country. Um, we have some parts of the country now that are almost approaching what's happening in Israel. We're getting 50, 60 percent of the vaccinated. And that tends to be in sort of the Democratic 
blue, bluish states up in New England um, and uh, um, um, New York and California, New Mexico. But unfortunately, we've got this sort of deep political split, um, which is really unfortunate. So that's and then the bottom states are all the deep red Republican strongholds where they're only reaching about 33, 34, 35 percent of the population vaccinated. And that's in uh, places like Idaho and Wyoming, which are quite conservative, and then some of the southern states. So are they just not getting vaccine supplies because they're conservative states? No, they're getting vaccine supplies. It's just that, you know, this has been the latest wave of the anti-vaccine movement in the U.S. It sort of made this pivot to the political right uh, a few years ago. At that time, it was more political extremism on the far right. But unfortunately, now it's sort of become mainstream across the Republican Party. And a lot of us are unsure what to do about it. I mean, if you watch Fox News at night, which is you know obviously appealing to conservative groups, some of the nighttime anchors are going on these wild um, conservative anti, uh, these, these anti-vaccine rants that make no sense at all. So this is a problem, this politicization of vaccines. You're under, as I understand it, you're receiving a lot of uh, nasty uh, mail and email and uh, and uh, online communication because of because you you are who you are a, a vaccine scientist. Yeah, the um, the um, uh, a, a white nationalist or far right extremist group. Um, uh, at least the emails are all have a lot of white nationalist content and Nuremberg and Nazi content is you know called out you know is is directly attacking me now and. And it came out of a website that called on their followers to do this. So it's it's really pretty pretty uh, uh, eerie and and creepy kind of stuff that they're sending me. So hopefully it won't go on forever. Well, I hope not because you are uh, you're one of the most uh, highly recognized and and admired vaccine scientists uh, in North America, maybe the world, from what as a, you know from what I know about you. And I've certainly always enjoyed speaking with you and appreciated you being on the program. Uh, I understand that you were surprised to find out that Canadians are forced to wait 16 weeks between first and second COVID vaccination. Yeah, that does seem like a long time. Um, I understand there could be some delays, but uh, the problem is, you know, a single dose of vaccine has limited protection and limited uh, (coughs) durability of protection. In Israel, you know, it was shown that a single dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine gives you only 40 to 60 percent protection, although it does that was on, that was looked at only after a couple of weeks after immunization. Some say the protection level does go up, but um, but you know when you look at the numbers, Canada's not looking great. Only about a third of the country has received a single dose, and and only three percent uh, are fully vaccinated. So you still have a long ways to go, and and I would have thought you'd be further along by now. So is it concerning to you then? I mean, I'll, let me put myself out as the guinea pig. I received my first. Uh, vaccination in the first few days of April. The second one is scheduled for the end of July. Do you believe that I will have appropriate protection when I get to the end of July, or will that initial protection essentially have disappeared? No, I I I think you'll you'll be okay after <laughs> after July. I think the issue is going to be from now until then. You have to pretty much act as though you're not vaccinated okay. because the level of protection. Is highly variable, especially against some of these new variants like B117. So, you know, the fact you've gotten a single dose, likely you've got some level of protective immunity, but you don't know where what group you fall into. So, 
you more or less have to operate as though you're still unvaccinated. Okay. Dr. Hotez, how much of a challenge do these variants or mutations pose? And is it more than likely that there are COVID mutations we're not even aware of yet? Well, we always um, see new ones pop up, although there seems to be some convergence uh, around the different types. So, in other words, it's not just these random mutations. They all seem to have different similar motifs and themes. And what that means is we might be able to create booster shots for a number of these variants at once. So you don't always have to do this every year. We don't know that for certain, but I think that's one possible scenario. So even after you get two doses, don't be surprised if later on in the year, next year, you're going to be asked to get even a third immunization to manage some of those variants. Okay. In about 30 seconds, do you, do you believe there, are you confident that we'll stay ahead of COVID with the vaccination programs as they're developing? Yeah, I think if we can fully vaccinate the American people, we'll be in uh, very, very good shape. And if we can fully vaccinate Canada, even better shape. And and one of the things I've called on um, uh, over the last couple of weeks is I, I'm a little um, uh, surprised that the U.S. government has not done more to help the Canadian people, given our proximity and our in our shared history. I thought we could uh, provide more vaccine doses and and get the provinces to the same levels as the states. Yeah, we'd like um, that. And, and it's, in, it's, in our, it's in, our, in our own enlightened self-interest, and I, and I feel, you know, Canada's always been there for the American people. And, I, you know, I talk about sometimes the, I still remember in 2001 when Canada really united in solidarity with the United States and, and had, there were tens of thousands, maybe 100,000 right. people around the Canadian Parliament a couple of days afterwards. Right. You know, some of us are old enough to still remember that. And, yes, uh, sir. And that was very meaningful. And as I say, not many countries are there for us. Yeah. Dr. Hotez, I have, to, I have to cut it short, but thank you so much for recognizing Canada's contributions to the United States. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.